Bismillahirrahmanirrahim wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Peace and love. This is Brother Ali. This is the Travelers Podcast. Welcome. Uh, we wish you well. We say assalamu alaikum. May you be whole. May you be at peace. May you be uh, complete. Uh, if you're new to the Travelers Podcast, you're very welcome here. This podcast really is about the fact that we're co-travelers in the journey of life. Uh, it's a short time between the womb and the tomb, but here we all are together trying to make sense of it all. And the same way that we see the world with our eyes, but we've never seen our own face. We, the eyes see everything, but the eyes can't see themselves. And we don't remember being born. These are some elements and aspects of the human reality that for everything I've seen, I can't see my own face. I can see the faces of others and I, I need a device. I need some sort of way to see myself reflected for me to even see myself. I've only seen myself reflected in mirrors or in iPhones on selfie mode, but I know myself best in the reflection of the people that I see, of other people that I share that reality with. I'm seeing them, but they've never seen them. They're seeing me, but they've never seen them. And I've never seen me, you know? So we need each other. And, you know, we don't remember how we came into this earth. We don't remember being born. But we think that we were probably born because we see others being born. And we're told the stories of us being born. But it, we really require other people to be able to see ourselves. And so this podcast is about reflecting together and drawing those connections, you know, of community, of culture, of the connective tissue, of context. Um, the spiritual connections, the communal connections, the cultural connections, um, and the ways that our lives intersect with each other. So uh, these are conversations usually. Sometimes it's me talking and answering questions that I've been asked or just reflecting on things that I want to share. And it really is an exchange. It's a give and a take. And it is a conversation. It's a chorus. It's a caravan of lovers and of people that are living and are, are seeking healing and wholeness and meaning and connection and context and to be complete. And that's what we mean when we say, Salaamu Alaikum, may you be whole, may you be complete. Um, may you be uh, not fragmented. May you be healed, may you be one, may you be a person of integrity. May we all be that way. The guest on the podcast today is a really important one. This is one of the people that when I wanted decided out, you know, when I knew that I wanted to have this podcast, this is one of the people that I said, man, I absolutely have to talk to Slug from Atmosphere. Not only because of who he is to me, and make no mistake, Slug is, you know, I'm not me if it's not for Slug, but also the fact that his, you know, and really them, Atmosphere, the group, which is Slug, the MC, Sean Daly, and Anthony Davis, or Ant, the producer, the two of them. Uh, what they've given to the genre, to the culture, to the world, in terms of their own exploration and expression of themselves is extremely special. And it's really unique and it's really singular, but they also come from a community. And that's what part of what we'll talk about here. There's going to be two of these episodes. Uh, I just wrapped up the, e the West Coast leg of the Traveler's Tour, the tour where we went on tour doing uh, concerts, but also having these Q&A conversations, um, you know, for this entire tour, really celebrating the podcast and bringing it to life for people and, uh, you know, doing it live. And 
the final date of this tour was in Madison, Wisconsin, and it's almost 20 years uh, to the 20 year anniversary of when Slug brought me on tour for the first time when they released their album called God Loves Ugly. And uh, Brendan, the producer of this podcast, and I went out on tour with them for 60 some shows. And this really marks the beginning of me doing this as a career and as a profession. And, um, you know, so he has that impact on me. And Madison was the first date of that tour. And Madison is where I ended this tour. Madison is also where I was born. So we did these all over the place and the audiences were different in each location. Um, you know, the venues were different. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, the audiences look very different, different walks of life. Some of them were mostly Muslim. Some of them were mostly, uh, you know, indigenous. Some of them were mostly, you know, this is Madison, Wisconsin, so it's mostly white Midwesterners. And um, so we had a beautiful conversation. You know, I, what you can't see, there's there's some stuff here that I wish we would have captured, but this is recorded in a theater, a beautiful theater in downtown uh, Madison called the Majestic Theater. Um, you're not seeing that. Uh, during this VIP session, there was around between 50 and 60 people that were in the audience. Uh, unfortunately, you don't see them. And during the times when they asked their questions, uh, they weren't mic'd. We didn't hand them a microphone because the people could just speak and hear each other. So what we do is we boost the audio during that time, but the audio is not great you know, when you're hearing these questions. Um, but this is just a really, the first of two. So we did this one uh, in person with an audience at the Majestic Theater. And then the conversation that you'll hear in part two next week, inshallah, is a conversation that Slug and I continued one-on-one um, -on -one in my hotel room the following morning. And that's a hotel that a lot of us have stayed at and atmosphere has stayed at all, many, many times throughout the years of us touring. And so, you know, this is us really reflecting. And, and what's really dope, I think, is that the version of slug the 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 presence that we get in these conversations is just really reflective of the work that he's done and the reflecting that he's done and the processing that he's done and just sitting with himself and sitting with his reality and becoming you know really developed and 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 self-aware and aware of the world around him and aware of his own intention just the the knowledge and from how familiar he is and how at home he is in his skin in this particular moment is just really evident, you know. And we talk about his journey on this podcast. You know, we talk to these people that are known for their public work, but my intention with the most of them is to not necessarily talk about that work, but really use that work as a portal to the person themselves to talk about the journey that their heart has been on and what they've learned along the way and the highs and lows of, of and joys and woes of this journey and what it's taught them and the wisdom that they can share with us and the ways that we can see ourselves in their navigating of their own path. And Slug really shows up, I think, ready to do that. You know, you hear him reflecting on different parts of his life. And even as one of his, I would say I'm one of his closest friends, and he's certainly one of my closest friends, there are things that I never knew about him that come out in these conversations, things that I never would have imagined about him that come out. You know, and so I'm sharing my observations of him, and he's sharing what those things actually meant to him. 
And so it's just really incredible conversation that I'm very, very grateful for. Uh, we're brought to you. We have a new sponsor this week. The sponsors on and partners on the podcast are an extension of the podcast. We don't do corporate sponsorships. We do uh, people from our communities and organizations and institutions from our community, people that I know, people that I love and trust and work with and you know, I'm just happy to be in partnership with. So we have a new sponsorship this week called, or and a new partner this week called Udimentary that I'm really excited to talk to you about. Um, we're also brought to you by Zakat Foundation. We're brought to you by Unity Productions Foundation. And we're brought to you by our teacher, our brother, our healer, Rezma Menikim and his new book, The Quaking of America. So we're very grateful that you're here. I'm going to be quiet now and get to this extremely dope episode with my man Slug from Africa. Atmosphere. You guys feel good in here tonight? Very, very grateful. I've been looking forward to tonight for a long time, a long time. And uh, we are going to bring out the guest of honor. Uh, you know, I talk on this, on my podcast all the time. Do you guys listen to the podcast? You know, I have a podcast. Yeah, it's the law. If you're a rapper, you have to have a podcast. So I tried to make mine good. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like avoiding your taxes if you don't have one yet. But I try to make it good. And one of the people that I reference all the time is Dr. Cornell West because he's got these phrases that just really sum up the things that I feel. And one of the things he always says is, I am who I am because somebody loved me. And the person that we're, that we're here with tonight Literally, I am not me if it's not for this man, were it not for the man that we're bringing out here today. So please dig down deep, make a lot of noise, show a lot of love for my man Slug, Sean Daly. How many uh, rappers does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> How many? One, two. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here, brother. Thank you for having me, man. It thank really you, everybody, for, uh, for having me. So I was born in Madison, and uh, it wasn't very good to me when I was living here. <laughs> My memories here are from when I was a little kid. And if anyone's heard the first episode of the podcast, a lot of those horrible things happened here. Uh, and then also, I had a difficult time with the family that lived here for a long time. And a lot of it got resolved. But my relationship with this city changed because my whole life I wanted to be an MC, And I worked very hard at it. And in 2002, when God Loves Ugly came out, Atmosphere did their first very long tour. Like you had been touring before that. But it was three weeks and things like that. I think we did 64 shows or something like that on that tour. And I got the call from my man Slug that, do you want to open on the tour? So yes, I want to open on the tour. So the first night of the tour <laughs> was here in Madison. And it's very fitting because this is almost 20 years ago now. And we're ending, I'm ending this run in Madison. And I lost my damn mind that night. First night on tour. Got on stage, big high stage. I punched somebody in the face. I had all kind of crazy stuff. Uh, like I completely lost myself. Uh, but that was the beginning of me being what I've always wanted to be in my life. And 
you absolutely ushered that in for me and you guided me in it. And well, so to, I just want to be say fair, thank you. to be fair, you agreed to come out on that tour for like the equivalent of a a box <laughs> of Newports and some Puma sweats. See what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're like, like all right, but you got to ride in the trunk, B. Like, and so you kind of deserve a lot of the credit for what happened in in what for what happened with your trajectory within that because your willingness to, you know, put everything on the line. And I, I saw and I know what all you put on the line to go do that. That is not standard human work ethic. You know what I'm saying? Like you really put it in. So I, I'm going to give you a golf clap on that. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So, so much of how I have witnessed you over the years is that you have become really comfortable in being who you are and accepting and making the most out of any situation that you're in. And, you know, I was on a plane one time with, I won't say his name, but I was on an airplane one time in coach with somebody that I sat down next to and I was like, I don't know who this person is, but I'm pretty sure they're famous. And so we're talking and, you know, and he said to me, he could just tell, he's like, so what kind of music do you make? And I was like, oh, make hip hop music. He was like, yeah, I could just, you could just know when somebody's an artist. So we're talking and, you know, who are you and, you know, what band are you in? And so I'm, I'm not going to say the name of his band, but it's a big, they're big, very big. And I was like, damn, you're a coach. And he was like, yeah, so are you. So, <laughs> so we, uh, we got to talking and he hadn't heard of me, but he had heard of you. And he said, man, I've always loved and respected Atmosphere. Most people think your name is Atmosphere. He was like, man, I've always respected Atmosphere because, man, he created and really curated an entire genre of music. And of all the people that are underground that say that they made the choice to be that way, he's like, I think he might be the only one that's actually telling the truth about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, and so I just, I've, I've always really attributed that to your being very happy doing your own thing off to the side. And because I know something about you, I know that, or I believe anyway, that it's connected to the way that you were raised and the way that you grew up and your family. So I wonder, can you talk to us a little bit about how, what were your first understandings of yourself and your identity? And, you know, when, when you started to have an understanding for who you are, what did that mean to you? Well, you're, you're digging deep. All right. Um, should we start easier than that? What's it like being handsome? <laughs> I think when um when I was young, I unknowingly fell into the group of kids that didn't know what groups they were supposed to be in. Um, and I, I knew how to do certain things. I could go and, and play football in the street just like all the other kids. And I, I knew I liked to draw just like everybody. But when we all started splitting into our cliques, probably around middle school, um, I didn't even know how I, it was, I, I, it's like I turned around and realized, oh, I, I didn't get a click. Everybody's all friended up and I really didn't know or care. So I just ended up hanging out with the other kids that ended up in that same bucket. And so that lunch table or that bus ride or that hangout in the backyard with those kids I think is what kind of allowed me to develop just this 
I guess, you know, attitude of I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be doing whatever it is we're doing right now. I'm happy to be a part of this. It allowed me to, to feel that without having to be too cool. You know, I had some friends that were cool from the neighborhood. And when I was around them, I awkwardly wanted to be cool like them. But the, the friends that I had that were really just like my real, real tight friends, none of us were cool. We didn't know how to be cool and we didn't talk about it. We didn't discuss it. We didn't care. You know, we just kind of did the stuff that we were happy to be present doing. And for me, it was sheer luck that it ended up being art. Because it could have been any number of things. I could have, I was, you know, I was kind of a physical kid. I could have tried, you know, spinning around on a BMX bike or a skateboard or any number of things. But the thing that I fell into was art, you know, mostly visual, but I was really loving this music that I was being exposed to at the same time. And not only that, but I had, you know, like, like any of us, when you make somebody laugh, it, it's one of the best feelings in the world. When you, when you can make somebody you don't know genuinely laugh, it's even brighter. And so whenever I, could, whenever I caught those moments, I was like, that's what I want. I want to make somebody laugh or make somebody smile or make somebody have fun. So I'm going to be a DJ. And that was what, that's, that's, and that's where I was like, I had to be okay with being myself because I was never going to be as cool as LST or any other, any of the other people from my neighborhood that were super cool and were DJs. And so instead I tried to make people laugh or I tried to soak up information. I tried to listen and learn. I tried to just enjoy the fact that I was willing to, you know, that, that I was able to take part in what was going on. I never felt like, um, I didn't feel a, a right to it. I didn't, I didn't grow up feeling like I have a right to this. I felt more like I'm happy to be here listening and learning, watching and, and ultimately taking part in it. It was, it was, I, I cherished that. And so with that, I think it, it grew a, a, an adult who was able to, I don't want to say be humble with it, but just be friends with my connection to this music. And then later to what I do with this music to, to have this relationship, this friendship with it, as opposed to it being a struggle to compete with myself or a struggle to, you know, uh, impress people or what have you. Eventually I found a place where I was just really good friends with this music and my relationship to it. I hope that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the things that always comes up is, uh, especially when you first came, when you first became known to the to the the broader masses of people, like you were our secret for it felt like a very long time, and I was with you when the music industry wanted to make you their darling, and what the brother said to me on the plane was actually true, and I witnessed it, you know, uh, but one but. One of the things that I want to ask you about is because when you first came out, they just put you in the category of white rap. <laughs> like nobody ever asked you, nobody ever clarified, no one ever asked you how you identify, you know what I'm saying? But we know that those of us, I'm from North Minneapolis. Sean is, is famously from South Minneapolis. My condolences. Um, South well, Minneapolis well, is... Well, you're from Madison, B. <laughs> South Minneapolis is a, a character in your music the same way that Jay-Z, that Brooklyn is a character in Jay-Z's music. Like, there's no Jay-Z without Brooklyn, and, and everybody knows that. 
and everybody else from Brooklyn is the same way. But, you know, South Minneapolis. So in South Minneapolis, it makes sense for somebody's dad to be uh, black and native and, you know what I'm saying, and to appear to be a light-skinned black man. And then for their mom to be white. And then for you to be, I mean, my children are, are your color. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In South Minneapolis, that's a really, that's something that's understood. Um, but was, I wonder, uh, how did you understand yourself in terms of the racial dynamic of, of life? As a kid, you just play with the kids that you're, that you're the children of your parents' friends. You get put into the party. You play with them so that we can go over here and play with each other. You know what I'm saying? So you're in a room playing with, your, with, with the kids of your parents' friends. And there wasn't no need to... We, we were all black. That's how it, that's how it felt. That's, that's the type of families my, my, my friends were from. And then in my family, even though my father was, you know, racially mixed and even, you know, racially ambiguous, um, it, was, it, it, it was a black household as far as I could tell. You know, I had white friends. And I seen how it was different. That's very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> and, I, and I seen how it was different in, in white homes, you know. But that's, it's, it's crazy to think about that because my mom is from a white home, you know. Yeah. And my father's mother is white, mm -hmm. you know. But just culturally because of where my father grew up, the block he grew up on, the people he grew up with, the fact that his father was black, then I grew up four blocks away from the house he grew up in. And so I was... And he was a teenager, you know, so I was playing with his teenage friends' children. You know, it just is what that, that neighborhood kind of was. When I had to really kind of like, I guess, maneuver it, it wasn't until middle school when people were clicking up. You know, it wasn't until high school when it really mattered in the sense of like, you, you could see it in a, in a more... I guess, intimate sense or a more personal sense. And then, you know, a few more years of life went by and it didn't matter. We were, everybody was just broke. But once rapping became more of a element of my life, it, 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 it showed up. And that's what you're referring to. It showed up, they put me in the white rapper box. And I was offended. You know, I had a lot of defensiveness about that. I had a lot of insecurity you know, I was, I was, you could easily say I had a lot of confusion with race because I didn't have a real look at everything that was going on. I've heard, I was, of, I've, I've heard of something like this myself. I was, I, was, I, was, I was behind certain curtains that didn't give me the opportunity to even really see the things that I started to open my eyes to later in life. And, you know, I guess there was a movie where, you know, I remember MC Search looking at the police like, how come you're not taking me away? And in that scene... Bamboozled. Bamboozled, yeah, Spike Lee joint. In that scene, it summed up something for me that I had never even considered to try to articulate to people or what have you. But the fact was, when the cops showed up, I was white. And that was something that, until that, you know, I always... I, I felt that in high school, but I just never knew exactly how to articulate that. And then when I seen that scene, I was like, okay. So I got to make sure when I'm 
rapping, I want to make sure to impress upon my audience or my fans or the people who, who care enough to listen where I come from and, and what kind of experience I have had. And I'm not from the streets, even though I grew up near the streets, you know what I'm saying? But I didn't live a certain lifestyle. But however, I was connected to that lifestyle. I, I don't want you to put me in this other box because I just happen to rap the way I rap. But if you really climb inside of who I am, you're going to find out that I might not be the box that you... What I didn't realize is that the box really wasn't about me. And I didn't need to be so insecure or defensive. The box was about y'all. The box was about the audience. They put me in that box because it gave them a way to identify who the audience was. It gave them a way to generalize the audience or to explain it easily. Or it gave them a way to be lazy or maybe it was a way to be thoughtful. I'm not sure. I haven't processed all of that. But all I know is coming from a history of working in record stores, it gave it a card in the record store so that when somebody came into the record store and said, do you have atmosphere? You could point them to that section of indie rap you're not going to say that's the white people section that's white boy rap yeah yeah but that's that that's it's, what that but is it's white boy rap that's yeah. what it is you know and it took a long time for me to realize the box wasn't about me and i wish i'd have learned that earlier cuz i think i could have probably processed it faster better stronger harder and communicated it to people and made it you know made it a, a part of what my vision is and seeing it because you know i don't think that it necessarily helped us to do what we later really tried to do which is break down some of those lines that were drawn between the audiences we thought these lines were being drawn around us but it wasn't until later with soundset that i was like oh man we can put fans of future right next to fans of evidence it's okay and that's what I later in life was like, I want to figure out how to break that down. And, and like I said, in the, in the early 2000s, I was like, well, why are you making me the white boy rapper? I wish I'd have seen it earlier, what was really going on, because then I could have spoken to it. Many of us were trying to speak to it. We all saw that, that, that these things were happening, but we just didn't have the, the proper education ourselves to really articulate it in, 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 a, in a way that we could connect with lots of different people about. This is so dope because there's there's observations I've always had of you, and so I just walk around thinking them. But you know what I'm saying? Because we're in a different setting now, I get to actually ask you, is this what is this what you meant by this? But one of the things that I felt like I've observed is that, you know, you're you're very well aware of who you are. But for people who are going to perceive you as white, one of the things that I've always maybe projected or maybe I've observed it is like, okay, if you're going to if you're gonna look at me as a white artist. Let me behave and model what a white artist should do in terms of the way that you pay respect, in terms of the way that you carry yourself, in terms of the way that you uh, honor community, the way that you honor culture, the way that you honor people. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because it always kind of felt like uh, you were able to show up, like if, if, if they're going to give you, put you in the white boy card, then like, okay, I'll do that. But you had this education because of the fact that your family is black. So you understand culture, you understand how to speak to people, you understand the things to say and the things not to say. But it, it always felt to me like you were trying to do that in a way that you would like for people to see it done. Did I make that up or is that something that you really intentionally did? I Here's the thing. I think that I don't know in the process of it happening, I would have been able to go, this is what I'm doing. 
I think I was just doing the things that felt correct. And there was intentionality in some aspects of it, but other parts of it were still wrapped up in the, my own, you know, my own racial confusion as well as my own life confusion as a young adult with a child who's now touring and, and has suddenly received some resources or some privileges or some power in, 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 in that world. You know, like I had to feel my way through a lot, a lot of, you know, one of the things that I've learned about myself is, and, and this is kind of a left turn, but I, but I, but, but it's not, is love language. You know what I'm saying? Um, this is a thing that I've learned about myself. My love language is to do things for you. If, if you ask me for a favor, I do it. And that's how I show you I love you. It might that's not, why we're all here today, by the way. <laughs> I, I might not always be able to just turn to somebody and let them feel the love because that's just for some reason not how I'm put together. My, my love language is to, to help come over, help you move. Or, you know, and so oftentimes, even in this, my love language towards this has oftentimes been to help somebody help maybe get them in a position to make this happen or solve something for them. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and now in hindsight, I wish I'd have had a little bit more of, of what I have uh, when I'm looking at that because I, I shouldn't have always been trying to solve stuff for people. I shouldn't have always been, I should have been able to sometimes try to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm giving a full full version of me within that love language you know but but oftentimes i would if i'm going on tour i'm going to make sure that i'm also paying some young black artists to come out and go on tour with me. paying them more than they would make in any other situation by the way well either way though but just to always ensure that i am showing my love to this culture showing my love to this space and this uh in uh, in this music and showing it back, giving it back to the people who created this music. You feel me? And so my love language was to do things for you. You know what I'm saying? To, 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 you know, and, and so I do think the intentionality was there, even though I might not have been able to articulate it at the time. If we would have sat and chopped it up and talked about it, we probably would have got to it. But I don't know that I was ever like, okay, Here's what I'm gonna do. Taking notes. You didn't write here's it in how, your journal. Here, yeah, here's <laughs> from from now on, I will be the model of any white. If exactly, I'm gonna be a white exactly. man, I will I be a model white man. I don't know that I ever clicked and had that light bulb, but I think that, you know, subliminally and subversively, that's what was going on with me. You know, and I've I've witnessed that over and over and over again. You know, I say in your presence and in your absence that you're probably the most generous person I've ever known. Um and uh, it would be very easy to cry telling stories about it, but I'll do some that sometime when you're not here because I know how you, I know, I know the face you make when I start doing that. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, speaking of generosity, one of the things that I've noticed uh, with you is that so often you are in a nurturing, caretaking role with men. Uh, and I wanted to know it, it, another perception that I've always had is that because of the fact that your parents split up at some point and you're the elder brother and, you know, with your two brothers, and I know both your brothers very well. I actually, when I, when I was, when I left my first wife and got out of my first marriage, I actually moved into Slug's childhood home and I slept in one of the, <laughs> one of the rooms in his childhood home because his brother had bought the house. Um, 
So I'm, I'm really, you know, well acquainted with your brothers. And I wonder how much did you being the big brother in a house where your dad was around, but he wasn't in the house, how much of you being the big brother uh, really kind of primed you and, and, and fostered this, this nurturing kind of leader? Because you're an alpha leader, but not in the way that a lot of men are. You never give other people directions and you never, you really do it by love and service and kindness and things like that. And then people come to you and ask you for things. And I wonder how much of that is just being a big brother in the family you're in. You know, that was one of probably my first, um, I guess, big ideas or big theories when I started to, to attempt to, to break open my own ego years ago was that because of how much of a role I played with my other two brothers, whether that was the role of telling them, you better go get ready for school. You're going to be late, you know, because mom's already at work. Somebody's got to be there to nag or to make sure things are on track or make sure somebody's getting a snack after school or make sure that, you know, um, the, med the medicines that, that, that one of them might need is being taken. You know, all of these things did create a person who was overly parental with my friends and with my colleagues. You know, I, I see it now. At the time, I was like, well, I'm, I'm a little bit older than a lot of, a lot of my peers were actually a few years younger than me. When uh, God Loves Ugly happened, I was 30, which is kind of late for an artist to break. And most of my friends were 25 and under. I shouldn't say friends. I should say colleagues, peers. Most of the other MCs that were in that same box were five years younger than me. And so that that reflex or that muscle memory of being parental with them, it wasn't me being like, you got to do this. It was like, here's, you know what I think you should do? Here's some unsolicited advice or here's a, or, or, or maybe we're talking, but I got, I'll break it all down for you. And, 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 you know, it was, it was that weird parentalness that I have with my, you know, and it's, it's interesting because as a parent, it's still there. It's just, obviously I've had time to try to like, you know, help it evolve to something that's a, a little bit more, um, uh, that works smoother, you know, but I mean, my own kids will probably eventually be able to tell you he doesn't, he, he wasn't like, Hey, do this. He was like, I think you should do this. I, I, I really think you should go clean your room instead of just being like, boy, go clean your room, you know? And I think all of that is relative to how I was with my siblings, how I was with my friends. You know what I mean? And I'm working on it. I'm trying to learn how to be a little bit more direct with it because what happens is I think in time it starts to come off as a, a, a weird passive lecture lecture instead of it being like just like, hey, this is what this is what needs to happen right now. This is, I know that's not what you asked, but that's exactly no, okay, that is yeah. what I, yeah, that's exactly what I what I was hoping for. You know, so this is a, a relationship that you and I, I want to come back to that because I think that because of you taking that leadership role and because of the fact that you are a few years older than some of us, and that made a big difference. Like when I met you, I was 19 or 20 and you were like 25, which is like a generation, you know what I mean? Which is like, you were an elder. It was almost like, yes, sir. I was a boomer. Was a <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and um, I think that that ended, my observation is that that put you in a place where people had expectations of leadership of you that you didn't necessarily sign up for. You weren't trying to be anybody's boss or leader. 
you were trying to be a servant who may, a, a, a lover and servant who maybe had something to offer people. I'm gonna come back to that. But before we leave the, this family dynamic thing, the way that you relate to other men is in a very caretaking role. But I also know that your role in your, in your house, that there was a very kind of specific relationship with your mom. And rather than me make any observation about that, We've learned so much in your music about your relationships with women. And I just wonder if you could share with us, how did your relationship with your mom shape the way that you engage with women? Yeah, that's something I'm still working on. That's something I'm still trying to fully wrap my head around. Do we have any Kleenex up here? We can... <laughs> um, you know, my relationship with my mother was that she was really young when she had me. And then she had two more kids. So by the time she was, you know, 24, she had three kids already. And she was in, you know, full swing adulthood, working her way towards a pension at that point. You know what I mean? And so it's like when her and my father split, the, the, the void that was there, not because my father wasn't still interested in making sure everybody was good, but just because he wasn't there for her to turn to. So I became the person she would turn to. And she was careful to not create a best friend relationship with me. And I, I right now, you know, looking back on that, I think that that's, that's perfect. I'm glad that didn't happen. And I'm glad that she had the foresight to still hold a certain rank with me. But the fact that she could confide in me or she could turn to me to complain about things in her life or she could show certain elements of what was troubling her to her child that maybe I wasn't necessarily fully ready for. And so I think that now when I see certain types of distress or duress or you know, I, there's triggers that go off in me now that I won't say fight or flight, but they give me a, a type of reaction that I've, you know, now after you know, obviously years and years of watching myself, like I now know how to like try to keep better control of that type of reaction because it's like, I don't want to be triggered by somebody else's stress. I just want to be there to listen. I just want to be there to hear. And I'll say it's, it's also something I do with men it's, it's different, but it's still similar in the sense of when I see somebody going through it, I don't want to just leave. But part of me does. Part of me wants to just be like, yo, 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 let me just back out of this room. Like that Homer Simpson meme where he goes into the trees. Um, but that's never what happens. What happens is I try to solve it. I jump in and I'm like, how can I come in here and save the day? You know, and it's, I, 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 from the bottom of my heart, I can tell anybody, I've never, never wanted to save the day for anybody. It's not something that I aspired to do, but it's just something that would, would kick in and make me feel like I had to somehow solve this problem for you, you know? And, you know, I got a couple notches on my belt. I've solved a couple of problems. Cool. But I do think it's created more stress than solution you know what i'm saying like I, I don't i don't know that we're here to solve each other's problems you know what i'm saying and i feel like you know i i again i i look back on that and go oh man i wish i could have known then what i know now you know what i'm saying it's that same old that same old story 
it seems to me like it's been a process of refinement. You know what I'm saying? Like it seems like these are truths that have really been very present the whole time and things come along and make them more clear. <laughs> like you know, one thing that life will do is clarify some things for you. Definitely, you know, and I think that uh, often we do things to help blurry it. Mm -hmm. We do things to keep it from becoming clear, you know, and I do think that I, I definitely... Like what would be an example of that? Drinking. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, mm -hmm. or, 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 you know, what, any, any, any number of things that you could fit is people buying shoes. You know what I'm saying? Like there's things you do to take your mind off the stuff you probably should be looking at. You know what I mean? And, and when you're in your thirties and you suddenly have an extra $400 in your pocket that you weren't expecting, it's like, there's, there's a lot of room out there to make everything blurry. Right. And then, you know, so you could go that way with it. You can spend it very wisely, like by um, purchasing a VIP package for a concert. <laughs> Aha! <laughs> but it has been something that I've, that I've noticed in you, that you have this ability and, uh, you know, and, and it, it almost is like, you know, Frankenstein doesn't know his own strength and he's got to learn, he's got to figure it out. You know, so I, in, in therapy with uh, Resma, I, I had a moment where I discovered something new and I was like going way overboard with it. And he was like, you're like Frankenstein, you're Frankenstein. It. You got a new ability and you got this new strength that you discover. You don't know what to do with it yet. And you're going to learn over time. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder if you could talk about that, the thing that I mentioned earlier, where it really seems as though because of the fact that you've been a leader, whether you wanted to or not. I can't remember who asked me. Somebody asked me how long I thought I'd be allowed to top the trash heap. <laughs> I didn't answer. I'm tired of criticizing. You know what I'm saying? Like this idea that like, you know, you have done the things that you thought would be next steps the entire time. Like you, it, there was never a master plan. There was never a grand design. It always felt like in each moment in life and in music and in business and in the family, that's like, what's the next best thing for me to do but because of that you've helped chart the course for so many people who couldn't figure out the next thing to do and then it feels like it created a feeling of people towards you with the expectation that if you're our leader you're supposed to lead us in a certain way and these things that people desired of you that you didn't necessarily sign up for does that make sense and I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. That does make sense. And because I did. And I didn't realize until years later, and we've, we've had this conversation, but there, there, are, there are things that I expected of you that you never, that, that would never communicate it. But just because you were always in a leadership role and I always looked up to you so much, there are expectations that I had to really eventually look at myself with. The thing that I would point at with this is that, you know, right now, all these realities are existing simultaneously at the same time. And you, yours and mine, you know, it intersected often. Like our Venn diagram got a lot of whatever that middle color is, you know, and even within that, our realities were always very different. So I never was a leader. I never was like, let me go lead. I never was like, you know, and it wasn't even like, you know, how does it feel to be given that when you didn't 
didn't ask for it because as far as I'm concerned, I'm still not a leader. I'm not here for that. I haven't been given that. And when people give it to me, I mean, that's their reality. But if I didn't grab it and, and run with it, then that's not my reality. That's not what I was here for. Now, what I am is a listener or I'm somebody who will try to give you guidance if you ask for it. Sometimes I'll try to give it to you even if you didn't ask for it, but it's in the form of opinion. It's never in the form of, well, this is what you need to do. To this day, I have artists who reach out and say, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to make this pop? How am I supposed to make this happen? And I'm always like, first off, let me be honest, I have no idea. I don't know what to tell you because our realities are different. And not only that, but if you're a newer artist, it's very different because when I did this, it still depended on, you know, pressing up 12-inch singles and it was a just a whole different world. It was a very different reality, you know. Um, but I even have artists who aren't new, old friends. People hit me up and will look to me and, and, and I have to always be as, as real and honest as possible in the sense of like, I don't know the answer to what you're asking, but I have an opinion. I always got those, you know, but with that, I don't feel like I've ever, I like how you articulated that. I never chose the role of leader. In fact, even if you try to put it on me aggressively, I know boundaries, boundaries. I don't want that. And, and, and it's not because of anything other than I don't, want the responsibility of feeling like somehow I had anything to do with your misery or your success for that matter. I don't want credit for your success. I want you to have that credit, but I also don't want credit for your lack of success. You know, I heard a comedian yesterday say, uh, stop following your dreams. And he's right. Don't chase your dreams. Right. What he said was, amazing to me i forgot his name but he's a he's a he's a person we've all seen he's an older guy that's been around forever and he said um no nah, go do what you're good at was it joey diaz no but it, it might as well have been yeah because you know he like, has a lot of those types of things motherfucker surround yourself with good people and see what happens you conquer the no, world it, it, this dude was nowhere near as aggressive as joey diaz so this is a guy who's been on like you know regular sitcoms uh old school guy, I can't remember his name, but it don't matter. But he was like, do what you're good at. If you're good at math, go do that. Because then you can make some money and then you can go buy some studio time. And instead of running to LA to chase a dream here in Indianapolis, you can be an accountant, make some money, rent a studio, make a song, play it for your friends so they can remind you, you're just not that good at this. You don't, have to, you don't have to throw it all away to figure that out. And that's not to say that you might not catch a dream. But it's to say that you have whole economies based on people whose dreams are dying in, in cities like Los Angeles and Nashville and all of this. It's like you could have had a, a, a really good life and made this music thing something you love to do as opposed to and he's speaking from the world of comedy but i can't imagine it's that different for a stand-up instead of being like the many people we know who 
love this music, but they don't love their life right now. They're not loving their life. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I know you well enough to know. So Bill Withers had, you know, got, got that his first record had hits on it. You know what I'm saying? But T.I. would say, that sounds like, we got hits. <laughs> you know T.I. went hella over at Soundset one time. He was way <laughs> over his time. And they, and they kept telling his DJ, this has to be the last song. At a, at, a, at a festival, you can't do that. This has to be the last song. And he'd be like, okay. And then he'd just play the next one. And they'd be like, yo, Tip, they're trying to stop us. No, shorty, we got hits. So Atmosphere goes on after him, Slug goes on after him, and every song in between, Sean just goes, we got hits! <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah, amazing. And then, and then his tattooed hands and like all of this, super dope. And the crowd is responding just as much to those as to T.I.'s joints. Um, but that's a, that should be an album title, We Got Hits. We it's Got Hits. You know, so Bill Withers has his first album that, that all these hit records are on. And they're telling him, like, hey, you have to quit your job. But he works at a, at a, at a motor plant. And he's like, no, this is, a, this is a job with security. I'm not doing that. And we all know that long before Bill Withers passed away, I mean, he rest in peace, uh, he stopped performing because he's like, I don't belong to the music industry. I know you well enough to know that you worked at record shops and drove trucks well into when many people would have quit their jobs. And I also know you well enough to know that somewhere in your mind, you think this is going to be over in six months and you'll be right back to driving trucks. And you're totally fine with that. People think I'm joking when I make that joke. You are not joking. Like, that's, a re that's a very real thing for you. I know that every major move you've made in your life is like, okay, music's probably done in six months. Atmosphere is probably not a thing to people anymore. Uh, so if I'm driving trucks, can I still afford this house? Let me go get my Class A driver's license. Be ready. We're very honored to be partnered with Zakat Foundation on the Travelers Podcast. They've been supportive from the very beginning. Zakat, Z-A-K-A-T, is the practice in Islam of giving back. We believe it to be something that purifies our money. The reality is that if you do business in the world, the reality of money, the reality of business is that as much as we try to keep pure intentions with the business we do, we want to feel good about where our money comes from. But the reality is that our money is not going to be pure and it's going to have some uh some some pain and you know that rubs up against it there's going to be some exploit exploitation tied to the money that we take in there's no way around it and so what the muslims believe is that when we give back uh, when we share when we give when we invest in in the the betterment and the the, the dignity of human beings it does something on a soul level, but it also does something to the reality of our, of our income and of our provision. And so Zakat Foundation has amazing projects all over the world, everywhere where human beings are. Um, and they serve humanity in a variety of ways. Like whatever the need is in a particular region, Zakat Foundation is there trying to do that work and do it with dignity and do it with excellence and do it with quality control and do it in ways that are involved with the people that aren't just transactional about, you know, throwing money at a problem, but really engaging the people and working with them and building with them and trusting them to know uh, the best way to solve the problems where that they've experienced. 
And so Zakat Foundation also has people on the ground wherever they are, ensuring that that these things are done well. So uh, follow them online, Zakat US, Z-A-K-A-T-U-S. Um, and also hit them up on their website, Zakat Foundation. Um, you know, among their programs, one of the ones that really speaks to me the most is uh, their their work to support orphans. And they do that work in really amazing ways. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast. But, you know, everybody, if we really look at our situation, everybody has something to share. Everybody has something to give. So literally for $5, you can provide somebody a hot meal in places where they need it. You know, for small donations, you can provide people with clean water where they don't have it. For $50 a month, you can support an orphan and their education and everything that goes into making sure that people have the opportunities in life to live full lives. So Zakat Foundation is um, is a group that we're really honored to be partnered with, and we encourage you to go and check them out and consider giving with Zakat Foundation. It's really important to us um, in everything that we do that we be independent. It's one of the themes that runs through, you know, independent uh, music and independent thought and independent culture. And what we mean by that is that we, as much as possible, strive to not make our decisions based on corporate interest because corporations are there with the one expressed purpose and intention of making money. No matter how it happens, if the money goes up, they've done the, we've done the right thing. If the money goes down, we've done the wrong thing. And we know that right and wrong don't always correlate. And a lot of times uh, it's the opposite of correlating with, with profitability. And so, you know, people whose expressed purpose is just to make as much money as possible, um, you know, that's, that's, we don't want to be beholden to that. You know, we got into this creative, artistic, cultural, spiritual space to be able to do and to create a reality that feels like it's in alignment with our truest selves, with our heart, with our soul, with the best of who we are. And we didn't come here to sell that and to become beholden to what makes the most money. You know, we, we're very clear about what our priorities are and, and the things that matter to us. So I say all that to say that the people and the organizations and the services that we partner with on this podcast are ones that we know and love and believe in. But also we're aware that there's a community that can be built around the work that we're doing and around the intentions that we have and the practices that, that we hold and the ceremonies that we have. This music is a ceremony to us. Uh, this podcast is a ceremony to us. These conversations are ceremonies to us. And so part of what we've done is to create what we call a caravan. Um, you know, something similar maybe to Patreon, but it's different, something that's set up for our particular needs and intentions. So if you head to brotherali.com and go to the section called join, you'll see that there's a number of ways to support what we're doing, to keep it independent, but also to create and foster community with the other people that are uniting around the intentions, the message, the purpose of what we're what we're doing. Uh, the highest level, the lowest level is $5 a month. And for that, you get the podcast early. Uh, you get it without these ads. You know what I'm saying? And um, you know, you're tied in with a group of people that are tapping into that energy early. There's another tier for $25. You know, there's another level of engagement where you get that stuff early. You also get um, a, 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 
uh, an oral history of my first demo tape, the, the origins of my career. You get that delivered right away. And then you also get digital gift boxes, things that we give in that community uh, to people that we don't put in, in public, you know, things that in the context of that caravan, of that community, are, are received with the intention that we that we offer them. And then there's a third level, a third tier, um, where people are really in, communi in community with each other. We have a private Slack channel where almost daily, like we're updating each other on what's going on in our lives. And there are people in that group that are fostering a connection and a bond between us that these are people that might not know each other otherwise. And I don't want to go into the details of people's lives, but I'm telling you that these are people that like, they're caring about each other, listening and learning from each other, connecting with each other, wishing each other well, praying for each other. People that that would not know each other if it wasn't for coming together and bonding and connecting around the intention of this music. So head to brotherali.com and go to the section called join and check out the caravan. And we hope to see you there. And we appreciate your support. I want to open it up and see if you guys have some questions for... I do. Please just shout them out. I can't see you, so just shout it. My name's Rachel. Uh, this is my best friend, Leah. Um, the last few years have obviously been very difficult for everyone with the pandemic and the lockdown. We both, both work as nurses, and it's been really challenging. Um, I'm just wondering how has the lockdown and the pandemic affected you and your music and all of that? Did everybody hear? Okay, uh, me specifically, I got home like two weeks before the lockdown. I was on tour um, January and February of 2020, and I returned home on the last day of February, uh, February 29th, 2020, I believe, because I think that was a leap year. Um, we played one last show in St. Paul, and then I went home. I decompressed for about a week. COVID was starting to become a bigger thing. Uh, on tour, we'd already been thinking about preparing, you know, ordering masks and handguns from Amazon, getting ready for the apocalypse. Um, so that when I got home, you know, there were canned goods and boxes of masks and we were ready for what was coming, even though we didn't really know what was coming. Um, and then lockdown happened. And I like, everybody here knows a person like this. I thrived because I was, I, I already didn't want to be around people. I, I was one of those people. I was cool with it. You know, oh, so now I just got to wipe down the groceries. I could do that. I, and, and so for the first few months, um, I tried to be the distance learning coach for two of my children uh, for the tail end of that year. Um, we went into, uh, you know, uh, right around on Father's Day or Memorial Day, um, George Floyd was killed. And Minneapolis just wasn't, it, it just was like, really? We're going to add this on top of the fact that we're all wiping down our groceries and, and, and not seeing our friends, you know? And 
we didn't know really what to do with it, you know? And so there was an uprising and a lot of people went out of their homes at a time when everybody was saying, stay in your homes. And the rest of the world was in their homes watching Minneapolis on TV come out of their homes. And then you started to see other cities coming out of their homes. And for all of this to be happening at once, it felt almost like, okay, we have these major, you know, uh, catastrophes or whatever. We have a pandemic. We have this, this horrific thing that this officer did, all of these things, but look at how the people are, are responding. And it gave me hope. So here I was locked in my house, feeling hopeful about the future. You know, I still didn't know what was coming. What came was uh, another full year of distance learning and me being the full-time coach. And that was difficult for me, but also I loved it. I was able to spend more time with my children than I had since I started touring. This was the first time that I was not only allowed to stay home for a year straight, but I was present with them every single day. You know, I took them out of the home and brought them to work and we did school at work. And so I, I was able to have this time with them every day, lunch, gym, you know, we go throw the football out in the street for gym, for whatever, you know, and then in, in, in watching one of my sons learn how to read right in front of my eyes, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and watching my other son, like, start doing things that, you know, I'm just like, what's going on? This is new math. Teach it to me. You know what I'm saying? It was like, it was just a really great time, but also one of the most frustrating things I've ever attempted to do. Um, so it was also very difficult. So by the end of it all, when they said, okay, you can go back out on tour, um, that was summer of 2021. Things were just coming down. I didn't even know what to do. I didn't know if I, if I was supposed to run to it screaming with open arms or if I was supposed to turn it down and say, no, you know, we took the tour and it felt like we were threading a needle. We, we, we were being chased by the Delta variant the whole way through this tour, you know, and it, it worked out good. There was, as far as we know, no super spreading moments. You know, everybody on the tour stayed safe. Um, so it's just been crazy. And all in, and in through all of it, ah, see, calling it crazy is, I don't want to minimize it. it. It's been, we are having a time. I am having a time. This has been quite a time. And I would not give it back, but I would go back and alter it. Like the few things, if I could, I would, I would try to be less frustrated during the distance learning with my kids. And maybe I would have like, you know, we went on a field trips on Fridays or something, just take them out of the whole environment because I spent a whole year with them and I look back on it and go, well, damn, like we went and got donuts a couple times, you know what I'm saying? But I, we could have went out to the up north to where the, all the, the agates are in the, the, the agate mines and dug for rocks, or we could have went out to the, the, the Waconia sculpture gardens on Fridays and had lunch out there or just kicked it because really school, like really, was it that important? You know what I'm saying? It's like, these kids are doing fine. You know what I mean? Like we'd have been fine. You know, I, I look back at little things like that and just go, oh, if I only knew this is an ongoing theme in my life, if I could have just been a little bit more, if I would have just looked at things in, in, in bigger, more open context and, and just really nailed it. I'm really trying to live my best life. And I feel like I just keep coming close to it, but there's always something stressing me the fuck out nonstop. Like 
I, I, I'm really, well, what can I do to make this the best experience ever? And, and, and I, what it is, is I need to stop stressing the fuck out. Because that's the thing. You know what I'm saying? And I know that. I just can't practice it in real time, you know? I guess I made a lot of music. Uh, I mean, if you come out to the car, I can play it. I got it. It's all on my fucking phone. <laughs> um, you know, we really, we've been releasing it steadily. I've put out more music in the last two years than I normally do. You know, usually we do a, a record every two to three years, and we've been kind of, you know, dropping them off about once a year since all this started because I've had the time to really sit and focus. I don't like to write when I'm traveling because I don't like what happens to the writing. It, it starts to get a little too insular and, and, and it's just not what I like. So I like to write when I'm not traveling. So all of the time I've had off of traveling has enabled me to, to, to write a lot. And just with everything going on, I've been able to really like open my mind about what to write about, you know? Um, you know, at the same time, I think that maybe my writing is becoming like a lot more abstract or, or a lot more stream of consciousness. You know, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm having the time of my life with it. Like I, I've been having so much fun making music with Anthony these last couple of years that, you know, I just wish people still bought CDs. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate you. Like every CD you buy allows me another box of strawberries. <laughs> the good ones too. Like the organic ones that go bad in three days. Soak them in water. Do soak them in water? Put them in a mason jar and put them in water. And just, and then they won't get all hairy and furry. Mason jar water. I just cut off the fur. I just like, well, let me just. Sculpt this strawberry. He's shaving strawberries. Yeah, man. <laughs> you put a little, put a little soul patch on a strawberry. Uh, look at that little strawberry. <laughs> we have any other questions for Slug? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think like all of us. I grew up on Beastie Boys uh, as a big influence. I remember when they, in like when I was younger, probably '99 or whatever, they apologized for their earlier misogynistic lyrics. Is there any lyrics now, looking back, that you guys did that make you cringe, kind of? Thank you very much for coming out tonight. We appreciate you. Um, this gentleman is asking if there are any lyrics that make me cringe. And that's a very polite way to ask what you're asking, because my answer is, fuck yeah. Like, here's the thing, like, again, I don't want to be, I, don't, I, I would never be like I was ignorant or I didn't know better. But what I was, was I was not on track. I was not, I didn't see the bigger picture in many ways. One, on one hand, I never thought people would actually hear this shit. Much less 20 years later, still be hearing this shit. And so I, I wasn't as intentional with what I said. And that's across the board. That's with all of my old music. There's not a single song that I made, you know, pre-2010 that I couldn't point at and go, you see what I said right there? But there are definitely specific things that I've said that are, you know, hurtful, that 
I would never say that now. I hear it now. I changed the lyrics live, you know, and I've been doing that for a long time. Like I, I started catching on kind of early when I started, mostly when I seen how people were taking my words and using them. That was the first sign that I was like, yo, some of this shit that I'm saying, they're not getting it. The tongue in cheek side that I thought I was putting in there or what have you. And these aren't excuses. These are all my you know, I'm being accountable for these are all my mistakes for not being able to go, oh, you know what? I got to be a little bit more intentional about what I'm putting into these people's mouths, you know? <laughs> um, I'd like to apologize for what I said tonight at the Maiden Great. <laughs> but to, yeah, yes, you know, the, um, and, 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 and it's, it's, it's crazy because I know how to see it and make sense of it. But I realize that there, there's people that won't. And because of how art lives, this is something that I should have to answer to whenever anybody feels like asking, you know, because that's kind of part of the game. And that's not me being a leader, but that's more so me just being human and being like, yo, like, yeah, you know, I said that there. There's a song that me and him do that I got a couple of lines that I'm like, I won't never say anything like that again. In fact, you know, and there's been times online back when I used to kind of juxtapose and move around with people in the comments and whatnot. There's been times where I've like, you know, answered to this online too, just to make sure other people see that answer. Funny enough, that's one of the reasons why I stopped even talking to people online, though, is because I've caught myself oftentimes going, okay, I'm going to respond to you, but since I know everybody's looking, I'm going to give you this response, you know, and realizing that's not real. That's me still being this, this other thing, being super conscious of the public side of what, of what I do, you know, and that ultimately is what I want to break free from because that's the thing that I fear the most is that public shit. And so... How do I break free from that? How can I, as you say, be exactly who I am all the time? One of those things is to be just a little bit more intentional about what I even allow myself to like discuss and wear. And, and, and you know, and just that's why I got off Twitter. I don't do Twitter no more for, for that reason specifically was because it was like, yo, like, what are we arguing about? You're super mad right now. And over here on Instagram, you're like, look at my mocha. Like, what are you doing? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I just was having a hard time with it because it was all so shit, hyper intentional, you know, everything. So I have no idea if that answers your question. But yeah, man, I, I'm sorry for anything I said that might have offended you or... Or any of you, to be quite honest, if you hear something that, that, that is offensive, like, yes, it was, and I'm sorry. And it wasn't because I was trying to hurt nobody. It was because I didn't see the bigger picture. You know, I didn't know that. I didn't know I could hurt you. I didn't know I had that. I didn't know that I could hurt nobody. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I want to point out, too, that, you know, you say, I didn't do that to be a leader. But you also did a lot of those things without having been called out to do them. You know what I mean? There are people that get called out. and I mean, there, there were articles written about the Beastie Boys while they were making their music. And LL Cool J went on tour with them, or went on tour right after them, and basically said like, okay, so we let these white dudes in hip-hop, and they're just wilding, and they're making it difficult for the rest of us. You know what I mean? So they had critique the, the entire time that they were doing what they're doing. And I think there is something to be said for someone who just from their own personal reflection has that growth. 
You know what I mean? And it's one of the beautiful things that happens. Like if we're going to witness a human being through their music, like to whatever degree a person is able to really let you in to the human condition and to the process of living and loving and growing and being vulnerable, uh, then part of what we will witness is a person's growth and evolution and their understanding you know, of, the, of the, the, the realities that they're causing for other people. And I think it's also really important to allow people to have that. You know what I mean? To, to, to be able to speak to people if they, if they are causing harm or if they're inspiring others to cause harm, knowingly or unknowingly, you know. Um, but to allow a person to have that type of growth. It's interesting that, you know, I said the F word on my first record. And in my mind, I wasn't talking about gay people. But this is my own ignorance, and it's an ignorance born of honestly not caring very much. You know, there's that clip of Joe Rogan saying the N-word 587 times. <laughs> and it's just like, dang, man. And, you know, because he's somebody, because there's things about him that I enjoy. As a person, I don't necessarily agree with him, but, like, there's things about him I enjoy. And it's just like, man, you just didn't care. So, like, you just didn't realize. No one, no one, you didn't get the memo that black people don't like hearing white people say the N-word. You know what I mean? But over time, and actually, you know, I met somebody through you that uh, we were on tour with someone that you brought on tour, and I had started changing the words of that song. And the first night that I did it, and I, had, I was bonding with him, and I didn't know that the brother was gay, <laughs> but I'm like bonding with this dude. And I changed the words one night, and somebody said in the audience, I was like, hey, don't say that, man. I, I stopped saying that, and I didn't know any better. And afterwards, he came and like tackled me. And was like, dude, I, man, I can't believe, you know, I bought your album and I loved it so much. And I was running around the lake and then you said the F word and I cried and I threw your album in the, in the lake. And I came on this tour and I didn't know if, you know, if I, could, if I could be open with you and, you know. And that's what led me to, to go and say something. And at that time, Frank Ocean had just come out. And Tyler, the creator, was so happy about it and supportive of him. But Tyler said the F word more times than Joe Rogan said the N word. And so people were, were trying to throw Tyler away. And so I wrote this thing for Huffington Post that was like, yo, I, you know, have had this experience. And there's like a dual message. Like, Tyler, you got to realize, man, the, the words that you say affect people. And I saw him later and he was like, yeah, I read that shit. <laughs> Fuck, I read that. <laughs> I was like, man, I mean, but I also said, like, man, Tyler's like 19 years old. You know what I mean? Like, give him a minute. I'm a person that's now being asked to write for the Huffington Post. And this is eight years after I said what I said. Like, give him a minute. Like, let him grow up. Let him learn. You know what I'm saying? So the, 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 fact, that, the fact that a human, that, that we can witness a human being make mistakes, that when you hear them, it's just like, my God, if I could do anything, I would go back and change that. You know, and, and then hopefully see that growth in a human being is a really beautiful thing. You know, you said something that, and I'm, I love that you said it because I just never thought to say it, but it, it really resonates with me. You said, you basically said, I was lazy. When I said some of the things that I said on some of the earlier records, it was, it was, it was a form of ignorance, but it wasn't, the type of ignorance that doesn't realize that words hurt, but it was the type of ignorance that just didn't consider that this is going to possibly hurt somebody. And 
I was too lazy to just figure out some other shit to say right there. You know, uh, especially when that laziness was, that was the wave at the time. There was, you know, we all said things sometimes some artists did it even to be shocking but if you were to call them out on that now they'd be like fam you know you're right and i i don't know what the hell was in me at the time you know it was art i was trying to make art and that art was trying to be shocking and etc cetera, etc cetera. you know it's just it's an interesting thing because we're living in an era right now where we are all a lot more aware of each other and aware of what you know what's what hey man i don't want to i don't need i don't even know you i don't want to hurt you i don't want to hurt your feelings and so i'm going to be careful and i'm going to choose my words intentionally to not hurt anybody's feelings and i hope that that doesn't hurt your feelings i hope it doesn't hurt your feelings that i'm going to because we're public just like my comments on the internet or in message boards or on twitter um, I hope it doesn't hurt your feelings that I might hold back or I might tiptoe. I hope that doesn't hurt your feelings, you know? And, and, and I feel like what, what, what's interesting to me is, you know, I'm going to come back to stand-up comedy. Like, I've always been a fan of stand-up comedy that hurts my feelings because I feel like that's how this gets said to, to communicate even my, what I'm possibly feeling, but also it communicates to me how this world works. And so I'm kind of nervous about how much work the world is putting into trying to stop some of these comics from hurting our feelings. You know, like where, where are we supposed to really fit within that? You know what I mean? Because, you know, some of my favorite comics are being called out for the choices of words that they use. Even, even when they come through and explain like, hey, this is what's really, this is what's going, this is how I'm feeling. This, like, it's not just this random, I'm gonna do this to be shocking or I'm gonna do this cause I'm lazy. It's like very well thought out and it's intentional. So let's have the conversations that we're supposed to have as opposed to trying to tell somebody you shouldn't say that, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not saying that that's, the correct way to look at it. I'm just trying to figure out what, what is happening and what are we really, how are we really supposed to be working within this? I know how I'm supposed to work within it. I don't want to hurt your feelings. And I hope that don't hurt your feelings. You know, and, and there's something about artists that, especially in this time, what really makes us love an artist is when they're willing to be flawed for us. Because there's something that we need about that. Like, we need to know I'm not alone in how anxious or depressed or, or, or uh, angry or sad or lonely I am. Like, so for a person to be uh, vulnerable like that in that way and to really open themselves up and be like, here's everything, especially when we're young, we really need that. And then when a person like that is, when, when they're hurting or when they're struggling and we struggle with them and then they begin to heal, there's something about that that as well that's like, I'm not alone in my suffering. I'm also not alone in my healing. And one of the things that was pointed out by Ice-T, 
when he was talking about gang, he said, man, I always know the difference between good gangster rap and some bullshit gangster rap if they tell the dark side. You know what I'm saying? Like there are people that make music about street life and they literally are glorifying it. Because certainly when you're living a crazy lifestyle, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're messing with drugs every night or you're with a different sexual partner every day that you don't know, or if you're selling crack, or if you're getting in fights at your, at your shows or whatever, while, whatever living on the edge you're doing, there's an element of that that's really fun and it's exciting. But there also is a downside. And so what Ice-T is saying is that when people are very honest about the entire spectrum of it, that he sees value in that. And I want to use that to shift back to the music that you made, especially in the early part of your career. There was a point when you were coming out and trying to prove that you could rap, which is what we all do. But there was clearly a period where you started to find your voice. And, you know, there's this, this phrase that we heard growing up, gangster of love. But in, in your documenting of that period in your life when you were experiencing so much, and, and there was a time when you talked on the records about the fact that like those of people that listened to your music might have worried about you. You know what I mean? And even some of us that were around you were just like always kind of always feeling this little protective thing that like, he good, he's good. Okay, he's good, he's good, he's good. Um, but that you all, you never glorified those things and you were always very, very intentional about including the entire picture of what was going on. And so I wonder if you could like, just talk us through like, what was, what was the approach in that time period? Because now you've moved into another period of your life and of your art and of your writing where I wonder, have you had, do you look back on that time? And think about it, you're still performing the songs on stage, a lot of them. Like, what, what does that time period feel like to you and your, your choices about, about what you included in the songs? If I look at that time period from like a perfect little academic space and just try to break down what was going on, I was trying to write songs that did cover the whole story not just glorify aspects of it, but also show that there's consequences. And that was also my favorite kind of rap music. To me, that is what KRS-One was doing. To me, that is what Chuck D was doing. That is what my heroes were doing. So I was, I was making sure to, to do my best to add that element into my music as well. And, and what, you, what Ice-T said, you know, I, I really relate to that because it's the same thing. The problem that I had with a lot of the street rap from like, let's say, you know, kind of like the shiny era is that it didn't show you the consequences of bringing a gun to the club. You know what I'm saying? It didn't show you the consequences of certain choices. If you get caught up, this is going to go south real fast. You know what I'm saying? It didn't do that in the song. Some artists did. You know, you got, like, the Ghetto Boys were good at it. And some of the older ones were really good at making sure you didn't do what we're doing in our song. Right. Like, it, like they knew they were talking to kids. Yes. You know? And, and so I, I approached it like that because that's, that's what I was raised on. Now, when I look at my real personal relationship to my music, the older stuff specifically, I am not obviously I don't have the same attachment to those songs that I had back then because back then those songs were kind of like 
me trying to write my way out of that lifestyle. It was me trying to convince myself that I need to go home and go to bed right now. You know what I mean? Whereas now I still have a relationship because I have to perform some of those songs. And, and, and I say have to with lowercase letters. And I, I make sure though that I can perform them with a genuine love for them. And so what I do is I look for the people that those songs are really connecting with. And I make those connections with that individual in front of me. You know what I'm saying? It's like I put the work into looking people in their faces and finding out who really likes Fuck You Lucy. Somebody really likes it. And me and you, we're doing this song together tonight. Fuck You Lucy. You know, and that's where I find my you know, that's what, that's what my relationship is now. I see those songs almost like I'm covering them. You know what I mean? Yes. I'm, I'm covering so, this song tonight and I'm going to change the words a little bit because right. the, the original writer was kind of lazy. So <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to flip a couple of things in Go there ahead, that make man. it a little tighter. You right, know what I'm saying? Right, and right. I might say the name of your city tonight. I might put that in there. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. like, uh, but the real, the real show when I perform that song is no longer the lyrics. It's now me and me and the connection that I'm trying to make with people. And also to make sure that if I don't look you in the eye, you at least seen me looking him in the eye and you saw us have this connection because as long as you see us have this connection, everybody feels that everybody knows what that is, you know? And, and that's, and that's where I see those. Udimentary, O-U-D, oud, is um, it's some it's it's a type of wood that exists in the world of aromatherapy. Some people call it aromatherapy. Uh, you know, people are becoming more and more aware of this reality that you know bringing certain uh, things from the the natural world into spaces to purify them to clear them of bad energy and to and to fill them with good intention. This is something that people that are connected to nature have practiced for generations, since the beginning. And so it's become very uh, common now to burn sage. Uh, and, and I believe in that. And I believe that it should be done, uh, you know, ideally it would be done with connection to elders and healers that are embodied uh, inheritors of that tradition. So yeah, you can go online and you can buy some sage and you can burn it in your house. And there are properties there. I believe in that. You don't have to believe in it, but I do. But it's even better if we learn and, and, and are gifted this practice from people who understand it and understand what it means and who are, who are connected to that practice for, throughout time. Um, so people burn sage, people burn Palo Santo, which is another, has those properties as well. And, you know, those things are dope. There's a, there is a reality and there's a, a, a type of wood called aloes wood that's called oud in, uh, in the tradition that it comes from. This is a particular type of wood. It's a particular tree that, uh, grows mostly in Southeast Asia in uh, Cambodia, in Thailand, in Malaysia, 
and it, it's a tree that gets infected with a type of fungus. And that fungus could kill it, but it naturally develops antibodies to fight off that fungus and to, and to heal the tree. And those antibodies are what give it this amazing smell, this amazing scent. And so it can be distilled into oil. And, you know, there are people that know, especially Muslims, like we love to wear oil. We don't like to have uh, alcohol on our bodies or on our clothes. We don't like to pray with that alcohol on us. And so uh, we use oils and everybody know, everybody that's been around Muslims know that we use oils. Most people have smelled very cheap, watered down oils. Uh, most people have smelled like really, I'm sorry to say it, but like low quality oils. When you smell pure oud oil, it's almost challenging to your senses, but it also has this really deep, woodsy, funky kind of uh, smell that does something to the to the system that is really deeply healing. It also is energizing. It also is challenging. You know, some people say that Oud is the, the wine of the Muslims because Muslims love it so much. And it can be really expensive. You know, so it can be distilled into oil. It can also be... Um, uh, burned in that the wood itself, if it's burned over a coal, creates this scent that I wish there was a way for me to express to you. It's different when people say that something hits different. Aloe's wood, oud hits different when it's burned, and it and and the smell is so pungent and and so thick and so true that it that it it soaks into the room into the space into your clothes into your skin if you put oud oil on your skin you will smell it for days and you know i usually oil myself and and, and when i go into uh to do, to be with people and there's been times where people will say to me like will just yell out to me strangers will be like you smell like heaven you know what i'm saying because this uh oil is just it has properties and it's been preserved, um, you know. And there's a lot of fake oil and a lot of fake oud out there in the world. Udimentary is a company that was founded by people that I know and love. Um, you know, one of them is a man named Micah Anderson, who you know. But they traveled to uh, Southeast Asia to sit with the people who have inherited this practice of burning and distilling this wood, burning it and distilling it to oil, to scented oils uh, for years and for generations. And they became inheritors of this process and of this reality and of this sacred ritual of, uh, of, of, of scenting and perfuming ourselves and our spaces. So if you head to udimentary.com, O-U-D-I, Oud, O-U-D-I-I-M-E-N-T, M-E-N-T, A-R-Y, udimentary.com. What you'll see there is, you know, the super high-end stuff. And you're going to have some sticker shock when you see it. I mean, sometimes a little three mil thing of oil will be $250. That's a lot. Um. You know, but they have that, and then they also have blends that will have, you know, some oud and some musk, and sometimes you can get, you know, some some different other fragrances as well to start on that process and on that journey. 
I'm telling you, if you experience it, you will understand. You will feel it in your bones. It will resonate in your body. And they also do have more affordable joints as well that you can check out. And I highly recommend all of those. And so I can't recommend this stuff highly enough. You're just going to have to experience it for yourself. If you want to start with the, inexper- with the inexpensive stuff, they have things at that level, at that entry level. But trust me when I tell you, if, if uh, the, what, this, um, what this, these burnables do, you know, the wood, um, what the oil does, in terms of making something mundane become sacred, of really helping bring intention to life. Um, man, I wish there was a way for me to just like hold my wrist up to the camera and for you to smell it. Um, but you know, uh, ask anybody that's hugged someone, you know what I mean, that that wears the oil, and they will tell you it literally can change your state. It literally can change your energy, your vibe, your mood. Um, you know, if so, if you've experienced burning incense or burning Palo Santo or burning sage, you know this is the this is the type of experience that we're talking about. But I mean, aloes wood oud is mentioned in the Bible. It's talked about in the Hadith of the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him. It's talked about in Buddhist writing. It's talked about in Hindu writing. It's talked about in First Nations writing. You know that there that there were people that interacted with folks that brought it from Africa. Um, and First Nations, you know, indigenous, native Indian people uh, smelled it as well and experienced it as well and wrote about it in their in their journals and told about it in their stories. So head to udimentary.com. I, there's, there's not more that I can say. Check it out for yourself, udimentary.com. Our brother, our teacher, our healer, the therapist, the author, the speaker, the educator, Resma Minikim, is somebody that comes up on this podcast a lot. And we're really blessed and honored. We, we, we have a conversation with our brother Resma. Uh, Resma is a therapist who comes through the world of social work and specializes in trauma, not only in individuals, but in communities and structural uh, and societal trauma. And one of the ways that he really contributes to the the healing of the world um, is talking about uh, racialized trauma and the reality of race and the way that it shows up in our bodies. And and he has a new book called The Quaking of America. Resma is a New York Times bestselling author. His last work, genius work called My Grandmother's Hands, um, really talks a lot about trauma and racialized trauma in black bodies and white bodies, the way that police, you know, what this means for police and the ways that police respond to different communities and different communities, uh, you know, respond to police in different ways. And there are exercises uh, that a person can go through, you know, in that text. And that was a New York Times bestseller. His new book is called The Quaking of America. And it's an embodied manual for how to survive and how to process what's going on in the world and in the world, especially with regard to the highly charged subject and reality of race. And uh, so Resma is somebody that's really incredible. You know, we're really excited to have him on a future episode of the Travelers Podcast. But his new book is called The Quaking of America. It's out now. We cannot recommend it more. Go to Resma, R-E-S-M-A-A.com. Check out the book. You can order the book there. Um, you can also check out his workshops, his training, 
you know, all of the things that Resma offers to the world. Very, very honored, grateful to be partnering with our brother Resma Menikin. I think I might be, I'm at least one of the biggest atmosphere fans in the world. You know what I'm saying? Your wife can have number one if she wants. I'm a, I'm, I've resigned you know, myself. It's you, only taken You about... definitely like atmosphere more than she does. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's up. My favorite atmosphere album is You Can't Imagine How Much Fun We're Having. It's and the it's best very, one. It's, it's very one. difficult, you know, because there's so many records that are so... But that to me, like witnessing you, I toured with you during that time in your life. That to me is like, when I look at those years, that's when your life was changing. That's when you very, and I remember from knowing you, I hope I'm not saying too much because it won't be specifics, but you sat a number of us down in your life and made us know that like, I am making different choices going forward in certain things in my life. And that was very powerful. And I remember the, the level of like, vulnerability that you had with so many of us, man. That was a really amazing thing to witness in a person. And two of the songs that you wrote on that record are like, I think God sent you here to write those songs. Which, which two? Pour me another. Because you're on the, like, you know what I mean? You're transitioning out of that relationship with substances. It has not been the same since then. And then also say, hey there. So, I mean, so the, the dysfunctional relationship song and the, the dysfunctional relationship with substances song, the self-medicating song, in my mind, those are... And you've written a lot of amazing music about those subjects. <laughs> like, you've written more than anybody else about... It would be like if Chuck D had an ultimate, like, this is the best Black Power song that, you, that Chuck D has ever written. You know what I'm saying? But those two songs for me um, really encapsulate what it is when a person gets to that place where they're starting, where those things are starting to be in the rear view. You know what I mean? And I just wonder about that change because it, it feels like a marked change from that period of life until you've jokingly called it dad rap and things like that, but like healthy, healthy slug, healing slug, is is a is there there's a, a period there that I think is really important. How do you see am, again, am I projecting that or do you see it this a similar? I mean, way? I'm sure that your what you see is yours, you know, and so I can't take anything away from it. And it's not that I mean it it makes sense, it resonates and I and I relate to it. From my side, what was happening was I was and you may have heard me say this before, but I felt like you write your future. What you write about is going to be a ceiling to what you live about. And what you live about is going to be a ceiling to what you write about. And you've got to continue to try to break both those ceilings. So at the same time, preferably if you ask me, but, but I'm, you know, I don't run a label or nothing. Uh, I mean that. I, and, and, and so what I, what I saw was, well, if I keep writing about this kind of lifestyle, how am I supposed to get out of it? How am I supposed to have anybody see me and see me as somebody different as I'm trying to get out of it? You know, I looked at some of my favorite rappers from the 90s and they rapped about selling crack for 25 years. And I'm like, how could anybody sell crack for 25 years? Like, 
you either going to go to jail or get shot or, or maybe get a promotion, but you're still rapping about being on the corner selling crack for 25 years. I don't want to do that. I want my life and my music to continue breaking some kind of ceiling. And so I made that record. I started making it specifically to artistically try to predict my future or direct my future a certain way. And then at the same time, I developed alopecia. I was going to ask about that. And I, I wasn't sure how to do it, but I'm glad. All you my hair started falling yes, out. Yes, man. That's and real. That was the best thing that could have happened to me at that time because what it did was whatever weird little crutch I was using of being the one of the indie rap sex symbols. You're, you're fine as hell. There's just nothing you could do about it. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> There's nothing you could do about it. Whatever, you know, whatever I was doing to cover up my own insecurities about my relationship to my talent, which is really what it is. I was worried that maybe I'm not as talented as everybody wants to pretend I am. My God, I never considered that. And so when that happened, it forced me to go, okay, I guess I have to like really try to write some songs so that I can keep this job or I got to be out. You know what I'm saying? Like, cause, cause who's gonna, who's gonna buy me Jägermeister with, patchy hair and missing eyebrows and shit you know what's hilarious is there is an interview and that this woman is still there out there in the world but there's an interview from that period where you kind of had a mohawk and people thought it was intentional and i know the i know how bad you felt in that moment like at that time and this young lady is interviewing you and she is still completely like gushing over you. <laughs> and if you watch it, you can see you trying to like skate around it and like bring it back to music. And, like, but she still is just like, oh my God, Sean is his slug is here. For me, uh, having that happen forced me to try to reconcile with just my talent and no longer try to use this crutch of being some kind of like ladies man. And I, I wanted to just write songs. And so I made... So I, would, I was already working on You Can't Imagine for those other reasons. I wanted to break my ceiling. And then in the process of working the album, like the album was done and in the can, and then I got alopecia. And then I was just like, and I have to go on tour. And so I shaved the head. I got a mohawk first. Then I shaved the head. I went out on tour. I worked hard. I, I rapped hard every night. I started a live band. Because I was like, what else can I do here to really make this moment for real so that I know that this is not based in anything but my drive, my desire, and, and, and just work, talent, whatever. How can I make this and make the most of it? And, it, and, and for whatever case, I don't know if I actually ever connected and felt secure about my talent but what i did feel secure about was my relationship with the audience it was not based on me being a lush it wasn't necessary for me to pretend to like you as a i didn't want to go home with you it, i didn't have to I, I didn't have to pretend any of this stuff that i had built and thought i had to be i didn't have to be none of that now i could just rap try to wrap my ass off and i got home from that tour and i was just like okay now what 
And I turned to Ant. I was like, we're going to make an album full of nothing but stories. And they're not even going to be my stories this time. I'm going to write a bunch of fiction and do my best to see what I can pull from that because that was a continuation of me going, how do I shed this insecurity that I have that the only reason people let me show up and rap is for things outside of my talent, you know? And, you know, I'm not ever going to be the guy that's like, and it worked, and I made this amazing record, because that's not how I do. That's not how I see it. But what I am going to say is it continued to secure the trust that I had in my connection with my audience, you know, because they were there for it. They were like, oh, you want to do this dumb shit now? All right, let's see. You know, it was like, no, okay, let me try this. And, and, and people continue to let me try to do different things, you know. It's funny, though, because I can't tell if anybody can tell that we're doing different things, you know. The other, the, the joke I just told Ant was this record we're working on right now, I think I'm going to call it, I promise you the next time we make this record, it'll actually be good. <laughs> <laughs> Those start as jokes, and then suddenly there's then there's talks at the office like, about, all right, they're actually naming it that. <laughs> um, we only have a few minutes left. I want to make sure that we get one more in from from you guys before we wrap before we have to wrap up and open doors. Yeah. Hey, I had a question. Is it okay if I direct this at you, Ollie? Yes. All right. So a little while ago, you posted a uh, trip that you took to Turkey. I live in Turkey. Oh, you do? I didn't realize that. So I was really struck by these beautiful <laughs> images you were posting of these tiled mosques. And a question I have to you that I've been curious about, I've been wanting to ask you since I saw this, is if you feel a different connection between God and the mosque that's been there for 500 years, or in the states where the oldest mosque is less than 100 years old? That's a great question. He asked about these, these historic, beautiful mosques in Turkey. My family and I moved to Turkey about a, a year and a half ago. Um, you know, the, the, that's a beautiful, beautiful question. I do really feel a connection there. I do feel something very powerful there. It's interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking about Rumi, the greatest, one, one of the greatest poets who ever lived. Uh, and he had this experience where he was known for teaching Islam. He taught Sharia law. That's what he did. He's known as a great love poet. Um, and basically he had an experience where a man like walks into his life and he's teaching in front of an ocean of, a, of, of, of the sea, the Bosphorus, and he grabs his book that he's teaching from and he throws it in the water the same way that the, the, our, our gay homie threw my CD in the water. And he says... When are you gonna, when is this gonna be real and when are you gonna stop? When are you actually gonna start living this stuff? And then the rest of Rumi's work that he's known for is the fact that the love between him and this person actually made him real. And so the poetry that he's known for is his experience, and then he he loses uh his 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 companion. Um, but it's experiential. And I think I'm gonna answer your question, but to bring it back to that album in particular, I mean, Little Man is on that record, right? And is that night on that record too? My God, I'm saying my God, there's a case to be made for this being the best hip hop album of all time. I mean, it's incredible. I know you would never say that, but it's incredible. And what you see in this project, and I think everything that comes after it is born from that seed. You see a human being that has gone through so much um, 
And this, it really becomes such a huge transformation. And it really is the inner like journaling of a person who has experienced so much in this life, you know? What I would say about this country, and people always say like, you live in Turkey, there's so much history there. There's that much history here. It's just that, we, that in America, we've tried to destroy that history. We have mosques like that. They're called the Grand Canyon. They're called the, this lake. They're called Menominee. They're called, you know, but we've killed the sages and have, and have, you know, forced them to live in reservations and made it so that they don't know their language. So the thing about Turkey is not that it's a more um, alive historically and spiritually. It's just that even the secular Turks don't destroy their history. And it's one of the things that I love about Islam. And it's one of the things that I think, I don't think there's a, there's, it's a mistake that there's a connection between Islam and hip hop. The first recording I ever saw of you was you on stage in high school. And it's funny because in this song, you talk about, you hear this like in this, this high school talent show, you're like a Caucasian up on the stage. In, and it's like, you, you're struggling with like, hey guys, am I black? Or no? Okay, cool. So I'm white. <laughs> like, you see it all. But the first word that you walk, when you walk out on stage. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Are you ready? About to take them all on. It's Sean one. You know, I'm going, you know, before I'm done. I used to have the whole thing memorized. That is absolutely fucking hilarious. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. I'm, I think I'm, your, I'm the biggest fan. But the thing about Islam is that the Muslims preserve knowledge and wisdom. And it's one of the things about, about this tradition that I, think, that I think ties it all together. There was a, a lady that wanted to say something to her. I want to make sure we get... Okay. I mean, you guys touched on it back and forth, and it's been a really good heartstring for me. I mean, I've been a supporter for 20, 22 years or something. Blood is as thick as, you know, on the other side of it. But my, you know, we kind of touched on slugs, you know, that turning point in your life with... Um, can't imagine much fun we're having with you just tooting the horn of that record. But I want to ask you, as a, it's a very unfair question, yeah. but, you know, watching from your very beginnings, you know, rites of passage all the way to where, yeah, all the way to you, Ali, where, you know, rites of passage to where you are now, I mean, could you put, if you had to put a finger down, you know, at, at, on your personal journey, your personal growth for yourself, maybe, could you pick one specific record that spoke to you on your personal journey that puts you in the next? Well, for me, Shadows on the Sun is where it all changed. Because, um, you know, when I made uh, Rites of Passage, which is a demo tape, it's not a studio album. I recorded it in Houston in a hotel room. Um, and I'm rapping like Common. I'm trying to rap like Common, Talib, Yasin, Black Thought. I'm trying to rap like the last batch of guys that I still sounded like. And, you know, and really, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I would say this whether we were in this setting or not. But really, meeting, meeting, knowing, being accepted by, being encouraged by, being validated by, and being taught by Sean and Ant. Um, I think the main thing that I, that I got from you guys immediately was like, we, don't, we will not live inside whatever little conception we have of what it means to be hip-hop artists. We're musicians, and we have to write and produce and create songs, albums, shows, experiences that are in the line of and in the inheritance of 
public enemy, yes, but I mean, Gil Scott Heron and uh, Metallica and, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I'm not naming the right, but like, we have to be in the line of Stevie Wonder. We have to be in the line of, of Sly and the Family Stone. We have to be in the line of Parliament. We have to be in the line of Bob Dylan. We have to be in the line, like we're in the bigger world of music. And this is something that, that Chuck D was doing as well. This is something that Run DMC was doing as well. This is something that so many of the people that we love are doing. But for me, that is my first real record, but that's the turning point where following their example and their lead and being able to sit in the basement and just watch them create when I still was very much a one, two, ha, huh? and you don't stop. I'm crushing MCs and I'm killing them all and I'm shooting, you know what I'm saying? And I slap rappers and take the mic and I embarrass them in front of their friends. Like that's where, I, that's who I was when I met you. And I remember when I first, like there was talk about like, am I just going to learn from this group of people or will I be part of it? That was one of the things that you said to me is like, if you can, you're a great MC, but I've, we've known a lot of great MCs and they usually end up mad at us because being a great MC is not enough to put you in the hearts of people in a way that gives you a career. And what he said to me is like, if you can learn to tell your story in the music, then people will love you and whether or not you are successful has nothing to do with me. You know what I'm saying? That's something that was said. And so that was that moment. I, I wish we could go on and on and on. We have to open the doors and we have to let the people in. I, I want to, I know, I know, I know. Um, you know, one of the things I say when I'm just reflecting on that night, the song that night, uh, I won't go into it, the details of it, but there was a tragedy at one of Sean's shows. And, um, you know, it was a young lady that came to a show and wanted to meet you. Forgive me, this is a very, I know it's one of the very most difficult moments of your life. But, and it was a difficult moment for the community as well uh, that came to a show and, and, you know, there was a horrible tragedy. And what a lot of people don't know, and this is just one of many stories, what a lot of people don't know is that after that happened, we went back to New Mexico, but we didn't go to Albuquerque where that club was. But you developed a relationship with her mother and with her friends and with her community. And he kept, he kept going back there until there was a law passed, until there was a community built around that experience. And there's a law that exists on the books in New Mexico called Marissa's Law that's based on that night, that's based on that song, that now there are, there are things in place that make sure that there are certain background checks for people that work with youth and that work in clubs. And one of the things that always strikes me is that everybody that knows you, many of us that know you have stories like that, where that was never broadcast. There was never a documentary about what you did there. You know what I mean? But forgive me for ending this way. I'm sorry. This is something I do. But, you know, when, when Prince passed, we start hearing all of these stories and, uh, about the impact that he's had on people's lives. And, you know, I think that whether you want to be seen as a leader or not, the reality is that so many of us, whether it's people in the, that listen to the music, that have been given so much by how much you've shared of your highs and lows and joys and woes and your pain and, and, and everything along the way. 
not only though, though so many of us have been touched as listeners and I'm one of them, but then also just the people that you've touched along the way, um, I think make you one of those great figures. And I think that I know very well that you, you chose to not be, to not make that leap into letting other people control your narrative. And we're going to have a private one of these tomorrow morning that'll also be on the podcast. And we'll talk about that more tomorrow. But just for, for everything that you've given us and for everything that you've given me, um, words could never describe it, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all make sure you have fun tonight. You're the ambassadors for the audience when they come in here. You're the ones that not everybody, you know, got to see what happened in here. You're the, one that, the ones that convey that for the audience that come in here tonight. So thank you so much for being here. And, uh, you know, please enjoy yourself. Please be present tonight. Please spread and share the love in here tonight. We're inter- eternally grateful to you all. Thank you very much. And one more time, give it up for my man Slug. So that's our first conversation with my man Slug from Atmosphere. If you know me, if you've been, you know, taking in these podcasts, you know that I'm a person that, you know, the the emotion of things and the meaning of things is always just slightly beneath the surface for me. So I ended a bit heavy there, you know. Um, there's so much about my man Sean that I wish I could share um, about, you know, just how incredible he really is and how giving he really is. And, you know, I think that there hasn't been enough documentation and there hasn't been any documentation of so many of the incredible things, you know, that he's done. He's not interested in that. Um, but I'm really grateful to have had this conversation and to document it. You know, one of the things that I found to be extremely powerful is that him revealing that because he was seen as a sex symbol for so long and because he's such, you know, an attractive person and, um, you know, that he always wondered, it was always in the back of his mind, you know, am I experiencing the success that I am? Are people interested in me because of my talent, because of what I'm offering, because of what I'm going through on a personal heart level to reveal that myself in this music and to make dope music and to put all these hours and years into mastering the craft? Is it really about that or is it just that people think I'm cute? And and that he actually had a sense of... um you know, that he actually had an insecurity around that. You know, that's something that's extremely, I, I, I've, I've been up and close and personal with him for all these years. I never even considered that. But then also the growth that he, you know, shows and, and, and talks about and the beautiful question that was asked from the audience. You know, are there things that you said throughout this journey that you wish you hadn't have said? And the way that he and I are able to talk through that was just really amazing. We've got another episode, another conversation that we recorded the morning after. Me and Slug were in, you know, the hotel that we've stayed at over and over and over again when we've done shows in Madison. We sat there at, you know, starting at about eight, nine o'clock in the morning and just had another really dope, profound conversation that I can't wait to share with you. Um, please like, please share, please subscribe, please comment. I respond to comments, you know what I'm saying? But please, 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 if you're hearing this podcast, 
consider sharing it with people that you think may dig it. You know, doing a podcast is an uphill battle. We never want to force ourselves on anybody. But if there are people that would dig this, that would benefit from it, that would appreciate it, that would, you know, have an, a, an opportunity to reflect along with us and to become part of this caravan that's on this journey, become one of the travelers that are on this path together of life, I want them to have access to it. And the best way for that to happen is for you to share it word of mouth and people sharing it, you know, and receiving it from somebody that they love and somebody they do life with. That's the most empowering and, and, and important connection possible. So when you share these podcasts with people, please know that I'm deeply grateful to you. And, um, you know, we're grateful to our, our sponsors, to Udimentary, to Zakat Foundation, to UPF, Unity Productions Foundation, and to our brother Rezma Menikin. Uh, special shout out and thank you to our brother Mansur Panawala, to Emna Mirza. Special thanks to Aida Rashid. Special thanks to Darian Washington, to Ant, uh, who made the beat for this uh, for this song, The Travelers, and for the podcast. You know, special thanks to my man Slug Sean Daly for being uh, such a great and and giving you know guest. Special thanks to Mark from Medina Hip Hop who created the stamp logo for this podcast. And if I didn't mention him already, DJ Last Word. Uh, the Traveler's Podcast is produced by Brendan BK1 Kelly and is a production of Traveler's Media. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.